Hello and welcome to the Daktari Online Medcast. In this podcast, we discuss important concepts in medicine, medical ethics, and emerging issues in public health. In this episode, we are going to discuss about pelvic inflammatory disease as part of our clinical gem segment. And our guest speaker is Dr. Karen Mutembwa, a resident in obstetrics and gynecology at the University of Nairobi. Remember that this episode counts for two CPD points with the Kenya Medical Practitioners and Dentist Council of Kenya. Welcome. So, as an introduction, I would like the guest speaker to introduce herself and then we'll begin the discussion. Hello everyone. My name is Dr. Karen Mutembwa. I'm a resident in obstetrics and gynecology. I'm currently in my third year, going into fourth year, and uh, this is my passion. Thank you, Dr. Ari. Welcome. Thank you. Yeah, so what other interests do you have outside medicine? Maybe you could tell us that before we begin the discussion. Oh, I, first of all, being a resident in obstetrics and gynecology, I take, uh, I love doing um, videos. I do have a YouTube channel. I do a lot of training programs. I mentor under 21s, under 21 girls in this country. So I do have a, a whole WhatsApp group of 100 girls who I do mentor about obstetrics and gynecology and everything reproductive health. I'm also a singer. I also swim and I love traveling wow. and reading a lot of books. Wow. Yes. Which is the latest book that you've read? Uh, currently, I'm reading Blink. Mm-hmm. You know Blink? Yes. Yes. And so I read two books at the same time. So I have Blink and I also have uh, uh, Think and Grow Rich. Mm-hmm. Yes, by Napoleon Hill. Wow. Yes. Thank you. That's interesting. <laughs> so, Doc, let's jump into the topic of today. It's uh, on pelvic inflammatory disease. So what is pelvic inflammatory disease? A pelvic inflammatory disease, which now has changed to infections, um, is a, an, a condition, an inflammatory condition that occurs on the upper genital tract of, a female, of female organs. So we're talking about anything from the cervix and above. So the uterus, it involves the uterus, it involves the fallopian tubes and also may go out into other pelvic organs. Yeah, it is a very common condition that occurs generally in the public. Uh, we have around almost 700,000 people worldwide, according to CDC and WHO, that have reported to have symptoms that are the same as pelvic inflammatory infection, now not disease anymore. Um, it's caused by organisms because uh, it's an infectious condition, uh, which can occur either from downwards going up in terms of an ascending uh, progress, or it can come hematologically. So especially in our setup where we are in Africa and in some parts of Asia, you can present with pulmonary TB and it goes down to your pelvic area, what we believe hematogenically to cause pelvic inflammatory infection because of things like TB, uh, which have been reported, ascending infections like chlamydia, which is one of the most, it's actually the most common uh, sexually transmitted infection worldwide, followed by gonorrhea. And then we also have mycoplasma. So what, what, what are the risk factors for this condition? Um, yes, there are very many risk factors to this. One being, and the most common being, uh, being sexually active with multiple sexual partners. Why I say sexually active is as long as you've had uh, intercourse, even with one person, 
if they do have other people, then you're at high risk of getting this uh, pelvic inflammatory disease. Um, also having unprotected intercourse, that's also one of the risk factors. Being an adolescent, being young, under 25 years of age, the chances of getting pelvic inflammatory disease is very high uh, because of the pathogenesis, which we'll discuss in a bit. Uh, we also have um, infectious diseases, like if you have HIV, if you have uh, reduced immunity, then you're more likely to get pelvic inflammatory disease. Some contraceptives have been associated as well with PID. Okay, mm. which, which which contraceptives are these? Uh, we are talking about hormonal contraceptives. Mm -hmm. uh, so we believe that there are some hormonal uh, aspects to why you're more susceptible to getting an infection. One of which we believe that if you're on a hormonal contraceptive, you're less likely to be using barrier methods with multiple people. And the other thing is that your hormones create a situation where your cells are more susceptible to uh, attach more to the, the chlamydia and the gonorrhea and the like, okay. including bacterial vaginosis. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah, so for for this condition, pelvic inflammatory infection, as it now, as the name has now changed. So, how does it come to be? What are the organisms, and how? What is the mechanism by which they cause disease? Okay, so we have uh, three main ones. There are others. It could be polymicrobial, actually, uh, but the main number one is chlamydia, which can be a very silent disease that nobody knows about. Might be very asymptomatic, uh, and it is. It accounts to even about one million uh, people. I think from the 2016 up to 2019 who have contracted chlamydia without even knowing and have been diagnosed with it, meaning that those ones who are asymptomatic and do not know, so the numbers might be higher. Mm -hmm. So we have chlamydia, which is usually an intracellular organism. It usually goes, it is attracted to the cells of the cervix and, uh, and attaches and goes into the DNA of those uh, cells. So we also have gonorrhea, the same thing. Uh, also can be asymptomatic, more commonly symptomatic in males, than in females, so men tend to have urethral discharge, but women, even without discharge, might have gonorrhea without knowing. The other one is mycoplasma. Uh, that's also one of the most common uh, organisms that are associated with this. So what happens is that they attach the cervical walls and then they ascend through the cervix go into the uterine endometrium then they ascend up to the fallopian tubes and most of the time fallopian tubes are the ones that are affected and in fact the pain caused uh, by pelvic inflammatory uh, infections are more you feel more pain around the fallopian tubes so they will present with bilateral pain uh, around where the fallopian tubes are then eventually they pour out through the fimbria then they go out into the abdomen and affect the areas around the abdomen that include the uterus the you have at the patch of douglas you have some fluid in there and then it can also affect um, other parts up to the liver you have something called uh, the puts um, you have adhesions above the liver which are caused by chlamydia and gonorrhea but mainly chlamydia so that's how pelvic inflammatory infection occurs okay so how about organisms like syphilis Yes, syphilis can be associated, but it doesn't necessarily go up towards uh, as fast as all the other organisms affecting the pelvic area. Syphilis is more of a vein, it's a, more of a skin uh, issue. It starts like a sore on the skin around the genitalia. Um, then eventually it moves, has several stages, but it's not one of the main causes of 
pelvic inflammatory disease we've said it's polymicrobial uh it may involve others because you can have a combination of different sexually transmitted infections so for example you can have the chlamydia but at the same time you also have hiv and you also have syphilis that can happen but syphilis takes a longer time to evolve uh, it occurs like a, a sore around the skin and then now it goes into other parts of the body so it's not as fast as this this it's not an acute uh, issue at the moment do when you're talking about the pid okay mm. so <clears throat> clinically how does this disease manifest itself and uh, how do we make a diagnosis what are the necessary laboratory investigations okay um so just from the the way we talked about how it ascends and goes into other parts of the organs uh it will present with, sometimes it's asymptomatic at first but by the time it becomes acute you have abdominal pains usually the lower area bilaterally can be only on one side by the way so you can develop what is called a tuberovarian abscess uh, a tuberous ovarian abscess is a sequel of a PID infection. So that can occur unilaterally. So you find a patient coming to you having a low abdominal pains, but more on one side, which can be associated with a period. Uh, most of them will say there's more pain after the period, uh, probably because after having your period, you now have a, a more active disease. Uh, then other people will, okay, most of them will also come with a, a discharge. They might come with fever uh, above 38.1 degrees Celsius. Uh, you will also find sometimes you might complain of see, other symptoms like urinary tract infection because it's all confused with uh, that area down there. Um, so those are the main, main symptoms. But as you examine the patient, you might find that they have an abdominal pain. They have, a, uh, let's say, an iliac. When you're examining, there's tenderness around the adnexal areas, which is part of the criteria of diagnosing um, this condition. When you examine the cervix, you will feel they'll have either fundal pain or, or they'll feel they have a cervical motion tenderness. So those are the, the, in fact, the major things that will help you know that this could be PID is the history of low abdominal pain, they'll present the nexal pain, or end cervical motion tenderness. Those are the major criteria. Now the others where you have high fever temperature, which is above 38.1 degrees Celsius, or those who use Fahrenheit is 101, around above 101 Fahrenheit, degree Fahrenheit. And then they do have uh, the discharge, which could be mucopurulent. So we're talking about something that looks white, foul smelling, looks like pus that will come out. And then we have, when you test them, you find that they do have either a lot of uh, white blood cells on their, on their discharge, or you can, if you're able to do a nucleic acid amplification test, you'll be able to identify chlamydia, even gonorrhea. A culture will also show you that there is uh, gram-negative diplococci, and then um, when you do the blood works, you may find they have a high white blood cell count. It's not specific, but at least you can be able to tell there is an active infection. Some people will do ESR uh, or CRP, but it's also non-specific, uh, but it will also give you an idea of what is going on. But it's basically a clinical diagnosis. Just from the history and examination, you'll be able to identify that this is pelvic inflammatory disease or infection. So, Doc, maybe you could uh, talk about the pelvic examination. 
most people either they have forgotten how to do it or they don't do it in the normal clinic visits. Mm. So in words, please explain to us how to do a pelvic exam. Okay, a pelvic examination is a very sensitive examination for most people. Uh, therefore, I'll start from the beginning where you, you need to talk to the patient, explain to them from their symptoms that they will need to have this examination done. Uh, then once you get a consent, because that's the very uh, important thing, you will need to have an examining room, which is uh, safe, it is private, uh, you need to reassure them. If you're a male, you can ask them to have a chaperone, a lady, if they wish to have so. Uh, it's good to explain to them before you do the examination that they will need to uh, expose, we will have to expose certain areas of their bodies and we're going to use certain, uh, we can even use something like a speculum, which is the instrument you insert inside the vagina to be able to examine that cervix. So once you get the consent, then you can now start your examination. Usually we have a table, an examining table, uh, of course, safety covering up, cover all the areas of the body that don't need to be examined, but just examine the pelvic area. But before then, you'll have had to do an abdominal examination. Then once you're done with that, it's good to um, examine first before you touch. Look at the external genitalia, whether there's any issues. As you mentioned, there could have been even syphilis, herpes, any infection could be there. Sometimes some of them would have gone through uh, female genital mutilation uh, and it might also explain uh, why some of them have injuries and issues with uh, with their with their vaginal perineal area. Um, then once you're done with that, once you've noted every area that has an issue, then you can now uh, examine the, you've examined the external area, you will need now to do a bimanual examination where before that, of course, you've done the cleaning uh, the patient is ready you examine you're looking at the vaginal mucosa with your feel just feeling around with your fingers then as you also feel the sides of the nexa you need to do a bimanual examination where your hand is over the fundus of the uterus and then you're palpating and feeling the sides as well that will tell you whether there's an adnexal mass which can be a tubovarian mass it could be a pregnancy because it can also present the same way as a pelvic inflammatory infection then once you, as, you, as you're doing that you exam whether the patient is in pain when you're examining the cervix. As you do that, when you're removing your finger, you can check whether there's any blood because cervical infection can also present with some form of um, inflammation which will give you blood on your examining finger. It's good to remember that you're not complete if you have not done a digital rectal examination because that can also give you some information about why the patient is presenting the way they are. After that, we thank them and then if uh, need be, you might want to do a speculum examination. Remember to change the gloves and then examine and see whether the cervix is inflamed. But remember when it's pelvic inflammatory infection, that's an infection above the cervix. It's the upper genitals. We're not talking about the lower genital. Mm -hmm. So if you do find an infection down there, it could just remain from the cervix to the vagina, but that's not pelvic inflammatory infection. And if you don't find any infection around the cervix, Assuming you even do the test and you don't get maybe gonorrhea or chlamydia, but they have symptoms as we discussed, the clinical symptoms we discussed, then you can still diagnose pelvic inflammatory infection. Okay. So before we consider the differential diagnosis, maybe you could take us through the current guidelines in the management of uh, patients with uh, pelvic inflammatory infection. 
Okay. Um, there are several criteria that we use depending on each patient and what the patient presents with. So if you're able to diagnose, because we should be able to diagnose pelvic inflammatory infections immediately, clinically, it would be important for us to treat them accordingly. Um, according to, to, to the... We, we have different guidelines. We have the BASH, we also have the, uh, the green, uh, green guidelines. Uh, which is from ARCOG, it would be good to note that for most places where we're not able to do a nucleic acid amplification test to confirm chlamydia or gonorrhea, we usually use what is called a syndromic approach. Syndromic approach is non-specific. It's actually um, it, because you've already diagnosed PID according to uh, your own clinical acumen, you can be able to use certain antibiotics that cover for chlamydia, for gonorrhea, and then the others. So chlamydia particularly, so I'll talk about even different, uh, the different <coughs> organism and what they are susceptible to, because this is what is important. We don't just uh, get the guidelines just like that. So for chlamydia, chlamydia is susceptible to doxycycline. And according to studies that have been done ever since, and I think even in Japan, we've not been able to culture chlamydia because of its intracellular nature. Uh, it's better to culture gonorrhea. So we're not able to really give antibiotics and find out whether there is any resistance to this antibiotic uh, for chlamydia particularly. But we have not so far been able to see any uh, real uh, antibiotic resistance from chlamydia. So chlamydia is very susceptible to doxycycline. So if you look at all the regimens that we do have, you'll find most of them will have doxycycline in between. So that makes it easier for most uh, medics and any clinical person who's working with any patient with PID. So just remember doxycycline most of the time is in, in between. So when we talk about gonorrhea, gonorrhea is one fastidious uh, it's a cellular organism that is very has shown a lot of resistance to many many drugs mm -hmm. and so far we are doing we're still doing several um, studies to find out what exactly and why uh, gonorrhea is, is able to do that with all the antibiotics that we do have is part of it then we also have the I think you've heard of cefotaxim uh, we also cefoxetin we also have that. So you'll find most regimens will have uh, doxycycline for the chlamydia, and then you'll have now either a, a cephalosporin in between. Mm -hmm. So you have cephalospor uh, a cephalosporin, then you have uh, a doxycycline in between, and then the third one will be for any gram-negative um, organisms. For example, we also have things like trichonomas, uh, they're susceptible to flagrant. And then, then that's why we have that. So the regimens are, you can have the ceftriaxone mm -hmm. plus doxycycline. Ceftriaxone is just like one dose, I am, as an outpatient. Then you also use the doxycycline, 100 milligrams, twice a day for the next 14 days. Mm -hmm. And then it is recommended that you add flagyl, also 500, no, it's not just the 400, three times a day, but 500 milligrams twice a day for the next 14 days. Mm -hmm. That's the first one. You can either use that or you can exchange the subtraction uh, with all the other um, um, cephalosporins. Then there are people who are reactive to um, uh, to penicillins or to um, cephalosporin, and you find that you can exchange that with azithromycin. Mm -hmm. It's not the most recommended, but because of allergic reactions, we give now things like now azithromycin, 
and then of the same combination azithromycin, doxycycline, and flagyl. Then you can also use these are now options. Um, you can also use the fluoroquinolones if they are not reactive to the patient or maybe you are not able to use the other drugs for one reason or another. Mm -hmm. So you find you have the ofloxacin and you also have the ciprofloxacin which can be combined with other medication. We've also used gentamicin, especially in pregnant women who we might not be able to combine things like doxycycline in the midst. Yeah? So we can use gentamicin and you can also use probenicid. Yeah, so it's a whole combination of drugs, but the main thing is to understand the different types of bacteria that are there and then combine the medication according to what bacteria you're targeting. Yeah, but it's better to get a positive result also because you will need to know whether there's need to change the medication. If you start a first line, then you change the second line like that. That is for outpatient. In inpatient, mm -hmm. there are people who are. Uh, are put in this, um, like adolescents, mm -hmm. and it would be best to treat them as inpatient because they seem to be more susceptible to these organisms, especially in the reproductive system. As they grow, you know, there are different changes that occur in the reproductive system, so they will need to be admitted as inpatient. The other group of people you may need to admit is if they are pregnant and they present with pelvic inflammatory infection because it affects not just them but their pregnancy and even the baby. And it can cause mortality as well because sepsis is one of the causes of death in pregnancy. And then also if you tried the outpatient medication and it's not working, then you need to admit these other patients. So depending on the severity of the pelvic inflammatory <coughs> infection, then you need to know who is for outpatient, which one is inpatient. Inpatient, all of them will be IV drugs. So yes, we can still use the captriaxin or we can use the other kephalosporins plus doxycycline IV, although doxycycline has um, effects on the blood vessels, which can, you know, they can cause a bit of uh, injuries to the blood vessels. So you might want to still give them an oral dose of doxycycline and then IV flagyl as well. Mm. Mm. So let's say you have treated someone for two weeks, duration, and they still have the same symptoms. Mm. How do we help them? If, in fact, we're supposed to review, once we give the medication, mm -hmm. we need to review your patient within 72 hours because the effect of this acute PID can be very devastating, um, which can which can cause to adverse in, uh, issues. So you, you will not probably keep this patient for two weeks. Mm -hmm. You will need to see them within 72 hours. If they are not feeling better, then you can consider, depending on the severity of the infection, to either admit them, convert on the medication to IV, yeah. or you can change them to another different drug. If they are reactive also to one of the drugs that you've given them, then you also need to change them. There are people who cannot tolerate doxycycline at all because of the nausea, the vomiting effect. Although we usually tell our patients to have something in their stomach, before they can swallow this, because an empty stomach with doxycycline will lead to nausea and vomiting. Flagyl is another one that also not very many patients are able to tolerate because others are alcoholics. Others cannot just, you know, so the, the effect of flagyl, the smell in the urine, change in color of the urine, all that can, can cause a, a problem with adherence. So within 72 hours, if they're not feeling better, you can either admit or you can change the medication. Okay. So what are the if what are the long term complications of uh, pelvic inflammatory infection? Mm -hmm. So we do have 
cases of patients who come with infertility. Um, and in fact, most of the patients with infertility secondary to blockage of tubes will have a history of recurrent infections, which probably went untreated uh, or even they never had any symptoms. So what we so we get patients with blockage of tubes because there's damage to those uh, fallopian tubes. We also have uh, adhesions that can be formed within the abdomen, not just under the above the liver, but we also have the the pelvic area. Um, then we also do have uh, pain, chronic pain. They'll present chronically with just pain, pain, pain throughout. Then you end up doing all the tests and you don't find anything. That is because of the changes the pelvic inflammatory infection cause uh, down there. Um, yeah, they, mean, they, they can be systemic as well, and PI infection can actually lead to death. Actually, 10% uh, fatality. Okay. And how, how many percent go to the infertility stage? Or the ones who have... Um, it depends on the places, like here in Africa, most of the ones we have, uh, most of the patients we see with infertility, almost 60% will have bilateral tubal blockade. Uh, I think also because of the low socioeconomic status, probably that would explain why we have a lot of women coming in with fertility issues just because they have uh, a blockage in their tubes. Okay. So to summarize, what, what are the latest thoughts uh, in, in the field of uh, pelvic inflammation? Where are people going towards in terms of diagnosis and, uh, and management okay. of the condition? There's one important thing that I need to mention about how we manage our pelvic inflammatory infections. Um, we do have uh, different differential diagnoses to this, and one of them is having an ectopic pregnancy. Most of the ones we get, they complain of pelvic, uh, pelvic pain, but we forget that that could be a pregnancy there. So that one of the first things that have been recommended currently is to make sure to do a pregnancy test in anyone who is sexually active so that you can be able to ascertain and not miss out an ectopic and unruptured ectopic pregnancy. Probably it's just there, but has not ruptured and probably saved this patient's life. Uh, we do have changes in terms of how we manage uh, our infections and antimicrobials. Once you're able to identify an organism, it would be important for us to work together with the, the, the infectious disease unit so that we can be able to give the right medication. Like as of now, gonorrhea has a lot of resistance which has been reported and we are changing, you know, from, kef uh, from kephalosporins. We're going up to, we are going, in fact, uh, Quinolones now are, are going to be phased out because of the uh, resistant patterns of gonorrhea. So we need to keep up with uh, the, the, the infectious unit together with ours, including um, now even how we test for chlamydia and, 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 and gonorrhea, which are the main culprits in this situation. It's important that even if you have the diagnosis in clinically, it would be important to encourage the patients to also have follow-up tests because uh, once we are able to identify the particular organism and the particular antibiotic that it's susceptible to, then we're able to play it faster than usual. We now have the nucleic acid uh, amplification tests, so that's we also have the PCR tests. Um, 
Chlamydia also can have, we do the NGCT PCR for bacteria gonorrhea. And then of course the other organisms during culture, we're able to connect them. Um, yeah, the treatment, manic diagnosis is, uh, there's, there's still that criteria, major and minor criteria, mainly clinical, but there are other ways we diagnose which have been improved. Uh, but quite expensive, a bit intrusive. For example, doing laparoscopy to identify whether this is really pelvic inflammatory disease is one of those things that other people will be able to do in different setups. During laparoscopy, you can be able to see the tubes, they're usually inflamed. You can see the femoral ends have either purulent discharge. You can be able to see the pouch of Douglas and see that is fluid in the patch of Douglas and then any other adhesions that you can see you can also be able to identify those there's another way we can identify by doing an endometrial biopsy where we take a sample of the endometrium and then take it to the lab you can be able to tell that there is um, um, an inflammatory process going on uh, in the endometrium the other thing during ultrasounds, ultrasounds help us a lot. Uh, they may not necessarily give us all the diagnosis, but we can be able to see that there's fluid in the pouch of Douglas, but there's something else. It can be able to identify the tube and be able to see that there's um, the different signs on the tube that show you that there could have been an infection or an active infection, like the waste, waste sign uh, on the fallopian tube that can help you know that there's an issue here. Okay. So let's not forget, what do we do to the male partner? Very important question. Mm. We do have, it's not just one person. Most of the time it's a sexually transmitted infection. As I said, there's also the TB, which can come from the lungs and we can give a pulmonary TB in the pelvis, which is still a pelvic inflammatory infection. Uh, but most of the time it's a sexually transmitted infection. So we do notify the patient to involve and encourage them to involve the partner. Uh, in terms of uh, letting them come, we can be able to also run tests on them. We can get a urethral swab or an anal swab from the different partners, and we can be able to ascertain whether they do have an infection or not, and also treat them accordingly. Most of the time with all our um, treatment, what we do is we still treat the, the lady, and then we give her medication to treat her partner as well. Um, so, and also community involvement where we, we, we should, and this is why we do what we're doing to train people out there to know the signs of having a gonorrheal infection or chlamydial infection, which may need to be notified. It's a notifiable disease in a way that you need to capture most of the people who have otherwise will infect the whole population. So those are the kind of things we do. We encourage also, um, during the time of treatment that they can withhold from intercourse so that both can be treated. By the time they're done now, they can go back together. Use of condom um, for people that, who have multiple sexual partners, it will be very important for them to have that too. Does the, does the medication change? Which medication? The medications that is, are used in the females mm -hmm. and the ones that are used in males, do they change or they're just the same? Yeah, the first, line, the first line still remains the same. Uh, at least for the males, they don't have issues like pregnancy unless they have any uh, allergies to any medication. That's probably when we would give them a different one. But the same one, first line would be kept reaction, uh, give the doxycycline plus uh, the metronidazole. Okay. Thank you very much, Dr. Karen. Thank you. And uh, thank you very much for listening to us. It was uh, 
such a marvel to listen to the obstetrician and gynecology resident. So till next time, thank you.